Heavenly Father, once again, we invite your spirit to guide our discussion. Manifest your wisdom, Lord, so that we can be agents of change. And teach us, Lord, how we can reach here by going there. This is our prayer, and we ask that you'll help this to be our experience. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so let's look at, just want to go over some quick quotations about this concept of integration. So now what that means is we've dealt with the dichotomy, we've dealt with the attitude, work is separate from spirituality. We've talked about the fact, and Katie did a, a great summary of that, is that work is worship to God. And we find that God says, if you're going to bring a lamb, it has to be without spot and blemish. Priests, if you're going to come into my temple, your garments cannot be ripped, you'll be struck down. Nadab and Abihu, you can't just use any kind of fire. You bring strange fire before the Lord, he strikes you down. So you have in this sense, God is very particular. So if work is worship, then we can imagine that God is also very particular about our work. So just brushing through these, as truly as every plant has a root, so does a principle hide under every manifestation of life. These principles are interconnected and have their common root in a fundamental principle. And from the latter is developed logically and systematically the whole complex of ruling ideas and conceptions that go to make up our life and worldview. If this dichotomy is your, if fundamentally we view the world as a duality, then at this sense it's going to work out logically, systematically into the rest of our lives. And a lot of us live fragmented lives. We like to compartmentalize ourselves, do we not? This is school, this is church, that is work, this is family, this is relationship. We even compartmentalize relationships. So in this sense, you're like, the fundamental principle of duality spills off into everything else. And some things are higher, some things are lower. And we saw how that came in through the church through Aquinas and Augustine. Now, notice this quote from Tozer. One of the greatest hindrances to the Christian's internal peace is the common habit of dividing our lives into two areas, the sacred and the secular. But this state of affairs is wholly unnecessary. We have gotten ourselves on the horns of a dilemma, but the dilemma is not real. It is a creature of misunderstanding. The sacred-secular antithesis has no foundation in the New Testament. We put ourselves in a dilemma when we divide our lives into sacred and secular. And he says, this is one of the greatest hindrances to the Christian's internal peace. This is why many of us struggle. You come to GYC, you go to church, you go to evangelistic meetings, and all of it is like, man, can't wait to get those days off so I can go on a mission trip. That's what life becomes. When I was in boot camp in the Marine Corps, I remember everything was making it to the next meal. That's all we would do. Life was four hours at a time. So you'd be like, man, it's 4 a.m., I just have to make it to breakfast, man. Braxton, get out and push. It's like life was just like tension, tension, tension. Ah, I get to sit down and eat. All right, meal's over, just got to make it to lunch. And for a lot of us, that's how we're looking. Just got to make it to the next GYC or the YC that's near you. Just got to make it to the next evangelistic series. And what's happening is we're separating. We're creating this, this is sacred, this is secular. And it's as if we're like, Lord, we know, you know, you told me to be in the world, but not of the world, and this is going to be my test. 
So we're like, God put me here and he has a purpose and I need to grow. We want to be humble Christians. And it's woe is me, nine to five. Five o'clock, we're speeding out of the office. And we wonder why we can't impact our coworkers. If you are two different people, if you are two different people, there's a nine to five you and there's a five to eight you. I mean, that's borderline schizophrenia. <laughs> but that's what we do, yes? We're at work and we're this and this and this and I always reminisce about this. Thank you, my good brother. I'm about to pass out water. So you have, you have this, this concept that if we live this schizophrenic perspective of life, I am this from 9 to 5, I am this from, you know, 5 to, five to 8 the next morning. What happens is, we come to church and we're like, man, I can let my hair down, you know, just kind of relax and talk about the great controversy and what, what tree are you going to be eating under, you know, and when we get to heaven, then you come to work and it's just like, man, people, Christians believe in this tree of life and blah, 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 and Jesus is coming back. Obviously, the world has been here for thousands and millions of years, and you're just like, man, can I just get some resonation somewhere? Does anybody connect with me here? And so we end up internalizing ourselves. And we're living what we call a duplicitous life. This is me from 9 to 5. This is me here. Jesus did not live that way. He was always Jesus. The same kindness you see in Galilee, you can believe it was in the carpenter shop. And in fact, the spirit of prophecy tells us, the spirit of prophecy tells us that as perfect as Jesus was in his character, is as perfect as he was in the carpenter shop. Now you have to chew on that one for a little bit. He was as perfect in the carpenter shop as he was in his character. Jesus did not look at his work as a carpenter and say, man, this ain't saving the world. You can take off a couple inches. <laughs> Tell us we don't do that. We go to work, I'm a graphic designer, man, they just want to design this stupid stuff for this stupid conference, you know, whatever, whatever. I'm tired of this thing, man. These people call me up, they don't get back to me, they don't respond to my emails. But it's like, hey, I'm designing this for GYC. All of a sudden, the work has meaning. Yes? That's what we do. We're quiet because many of us are convicted. Because we're like, mercy, that's me. You're the man. So the, whole, so the whole thing is that for many of us, that mindset was not the mind of Christ. Jesus, by becoming a carpenter, restores dignity to the common laborer. You don't even understand that one of the most powerful people in your town could be the carpenter, not the Pharisee, not the guy who has the Bible memorized. But there at the carpenter's bench was the Son of God. And you can imagine how many people shysted Jesus. No, I said three chairs. Jesus says, well, here it says two chairs. Well, my paper says three chairs. You think Jesus said, look, brother, step out of my carpenter shop. When you come with the receipt, with the proper documentation, I'll give you your third chair. You know what Jesus did? He went back to the bench and made a third chair. 
and you know how he made it? He didn't do what we talk about. People like, hey, this food is nasty. Someone goes in the kitchen, spits in your food. Jesus went back and made a perfect chair and gave it to them. So when he says, you ought to love your enemies, I'm not talking from my head. I'm talking from my heart. I know what it's like to make chairs for people who despise you. And we have to learn that spirit of Christ, that spirit of integration. When I sit in the classroom, the same principle applies. Here's my professor. Here's my teacher. Here's my classmate. Hey, Sebastian, can you help me with this homework? This brother never shows up at class. I'm like, man, this is a lazy dude. I'm not even going to waste my time helping him with the assignments. Tell me we don't do that. You go to a group project, come on. You know what I'm talking about. Student B, who never is ever to be at the meetings. Oh, yeah, we're meeting. I can't make it, man. I'm, I'm in traffic. You know, my kid, it's always somebody with the kid. Can't make it, man. I'm sorry. Or they're on a sports team or something. And they're like, yo, bro, I'm sorry, man. I'll, I'll try to email it to you. Day of the assignment. Can I get you a part of the project? Please. Sorry, bro. They send it to you. That you can tell they just started it last night. Now I'm in college like, Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. <laughs> and you got to go to class, right, and present it with whose name? His name on it. That's what Jesus would do. That's what Jesus would do. So by us adopting this mindset, not separating sacred and secular, it brings peace to your heart. Because for you, I'm doing the Christian thing in my work. And that alone creates opportunities to witness in the workplace. There's two places that are always, always, always the struggle that I see with Christians in the workplace and in the secular universities, even high schools. Number one is that person that nobody likes, whether it be the boss or whether it be a coworker or a classmate. Everyone has one, yes or no. One person where you're like, man, this lady needs to get fired. She's rude to customers. She's just, how does she make it 20 years in the company? I don't know. This is the attitude, that one person. And what happens is, somehow that person is drawn to us. <laughs> As a seven-day Adventist Christian. I know I'm telling the truth. It happened to me at my job. You're like, the one person who nobody likes happen to work the same shifts I work, and drawn to me, yeah, Sebastian, how's it going? That you're like, <laughs> with my Bible in my head, like. That is one of the most powerful places to create a mark in your workplace. And what I learned is the people who create the most fuss and issues at work, those are the people I target for ministry. Because let me tell you something. Only people who are hurting say hurtful things. You should always remember that. This is the, uh, go to Mark chapter 5. I can demonstrate this principle real quick. I got to speed through this. Man, it's just too much stuff. Mark chapter 5. Are you there? Amen. <laughs> There's mercy. Mark 
Yes, Mark 5. This is what he says. And they came over into the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him. Isn't that what the co-workers like? No person can control this person. No person can bind him. And, no, and it says, no, not with chains. Because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. You can't get the brother to calm down. No one can talk this sister out of her attitude. Verse 5, And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. Now notice, he's also hurting himself. Did you know that? Those people you see in your office that are behaving that way, it's not just other people they're hurting. They're also hurting themselves. We talked about that this morning. As terrible as has been the things I've done to others, nothing is as terrible as what I've done to myself. Here's the demoniac. Verse 6, But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and did what? And cried with a loud voice and said, Lord, I want to be one of your disciples. What did he say? What have I to do with thee? Jesus, thou son of God, son of the most high God, I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Now who was talking? The man or the demon? The demon, right? So that means that there could be this other spirit in this man, but he ran down and worshipped Jesus, right? So he's physically in the posture of giving glory to God, but the only thing out of his mouth is hatred to God. What did Jesus see then? You said what? What did he see? You see, Ellen White comments on this in Ministry of Healing. She says, some people, their only way to cry for help is to curse God. Think about it. The atheist at your job. The agnostic. The like adamant evolutionary biologist. There is no God. Tired of these myths. And this is the situation that these people come forward and the only way for them to cry for help is to curse God. So Jesus looks down. He wasn't saying, oh man, this guy's lost his mind. I can't even heal him. I can't do anything for him. No, Jesus understood the real cry of his heart was help. But you know what we do? I can't handle the outer layers. You see, the reason why people put up the hard exterior is because they're soft and hurting on the inside. And they're saying, you know what? I'm just going to keep everybody out. I can't get hurt anymore now. And we walk away and we're like, why are you so hard? I've seen it. You know, if you, if you probably talk to any social worker who works with high school, middle school students, and me trying to minister to high school students, I see it all the time. I have this one girl in Boston, you know, I call her my daughter. And this girl, I love her to death. But I mean, there's times you would think, I'm looking at this girl, everything in her being, her attitude, her demeanor, and her words are like, I don't want to talk to you right now. That's everything's communicating. I don't want to talk to you right now. Why are you talking to me? Leave me alone. Everything. Just, it should even say it out loud. No, you're not interested, Sebastian. You don't want to talk to me. You're too busy. You're working, right? You don't have time for me. I'm like, what are you talking about? I make time for you all the time. No, you're just busy, and you only do that because you feel sorry for me. I'm like, I don't feel sorry for you. 
I feel sorry for me. <laughs> you know, she laughed. But at the end of the day, I know deep down, she wants me to keep coming. That's her way. But then one day, you know, we sat down and had a conversation. She, she just told me flat out, you know, the reason why she behaves that way, because she believes that if she gets close to people, they're eventually going to be out of her life. All of a sudden, they're going to lose interest. She's not that fascinating of a person. So if you remain hard and exterior, people will always constantly pursue you. They'll try to figure out how to help you and do all these different things. But as soon as you just become yourself, people are like, oh, now that you're fine, I can leave you alone now. We do that when we baptize people. Now that you're in the church, see you later. I got other souls to save. Just like Superman. All right, I saved you from the falling building. <laughs> got to go over here right now. That's not what God calls us to do. So number one, reaching out to the coworker, the boss, or whoever that has that just terrible attitude, terrible spirit, terrible interaction becomes a very key place to start making your mark as a Christian. The second area, the second area is in dedication to your company, wherever you work. And this is what I mean by this. Joseph, right, in the Bible, he demonstrates this integration for us. So Joseph worked in three places. What were those three places that Joseph worked? Potiphar's house, the prison, and? Yes, in Pharaoh, right? He was second in command of Egypt. Now, I want you to notice something. There's a progression in the timeline of Joseph. He ended up at Potiphar's house as a... So that means he didn't want to be there, right? It's not like he turned in his resume. It was like, hey, I saw you on uh, Craigslist, and that's not how it happened. He got bought. Now, let me ask you something. How strongly... And skillfully, would you work for a person who bought you? We just assume this about Joseph. But there's so much in that situation that does, just doesn't make sense. Or, you know what? Maybe Joseph, he was just a smart con man. I'm going to do so well, my master, he's not even going to need to look on anything in his house. Then I'm going to rob him blind and peace out back to Canaan. <laughs> Didn't that make sense? And I'm going to take his wife because she's in love with me too. So here he goes, he's impacting this, and now he's, he's, he's like excelling. And when Potiphar's wife comes to him, he tells her, there's nothing in this house that my master has kept from me, save you, his wife. That's it. Potiphar so trusts Joseph, he leaves to go to work and leaves Joseph with his wife. And at that point in time, we see that Joseph does what he does because he's not working for Potiphar. He's working for God. The prison. Falsely accused of rape. Now, it's very interesting because just like in that story, it's very similar today. People get accused of sexual crimes, even if you're innocent, it always stains you. They still put Joseph in jail. Even though Ellen White says deep down Potiphar knew, Joseph didn't do it. He's like, I know his character. And he probably figured his wife, but it's like, just because he's a slave, he puts him in the king's prison, not the beat-down dungeon. So he goes to the king's prison, and here again, you're a prisoner, unfairly incarcerated. While he's incarcerated, 
Next, you know, he's second in command of the prison. <laughs> now, I want you to follow this. You're second in command of the prison, yet you still remain in the prison. Does this make sense? No. Absolutely no sense. I get Potiphar's money, house, everything. I could just leave tomorrow. I'm going to stay and be faithful. Then, as a result of my faithfulness, guess how I'm rewarded? Go to jail. Now I go to jail, I'm faithful, and he rises to the top, and what does he do? Stays in the prison. And eventually gets put in a dungeon for two years. Now let me show you how professional Joseph was. Go to Genesis 41. This, this, this part of the Bible always shocks me. I thought, man, I must be reading this wrong. But it's, it's what it says. Genesis 41, are you there? Amen. All right, follow this. Verse 14. They just talked about the guy, remember Joseph? Oh yeah, there's this guy left in the dungeon. He can interpret dreams. Bring him up. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. Now hastily, does that mean slowly or quickly? quickly. You think they were rushing Joseph? They're kind of like, you need to hurry up. Now, if somebody's rushing you out of the prison because the king, I mean, he's basically like the Obama of his day. That's Pharaoh. They're like, hey, Obama needs to see you right now. You're in the dungeon in the dark, all this stuff, and notice the response. And he shaved himself. I'm like, what? <laughs> you have to go see Pharaoh. So he comes and they're like, hastily, you need to come out of the dungeon. Joseph goes, he's like, you know, before I go in, I need to shave myself. So young men, <laughs> can make the application for yourself. He changed his clothes, changed his raiment, and he came in unto Pharaoh. Even after two years forgotten in a dungeon, I have to come before Pharaoh, I need to shave and change my clothes. One, because they said, look, you're coming before Pharaoh. So obviously Egyptians, you know, they probably had some part of this encouragement. But at the same token, here's Joseph getting himself ready. Still functioning on that professional thing. Whatever I do, it's not about Pharaoh. It's because I'm going as God's representative. Amen. He comes before Pharaoh. He, he gets exalted to the top of the nation of Egypt. And this is the lesson that Ellen White gives us overall. She says, the secret to the power of Joseph's life is that in every circumstance, it was always about God. That was the secret, she says. If you put him in Potiphar's house, he says, I'm working for Jesus. If you put him in the prison, I'm working for Jesus. He didn't say, Jesus got me to be second in command so I could escape out of the prison. He saw that this is the providence of God, and if God permitted me to be in prison, I will stay here until God clearly takes me away. But I'm not going to tell, my, I'm not gonna tell my, uh, my boss and say, oh yeah, I'm going to try to escape, you know, da-da-da-da-da, because now I'm second in command. God just created an opportunity. No. And all the time in Joseph's heart, it was to go back home. This spirit of integration brings in excellence in his life. No matter where you place Joseph, you know what you're going to get. You know what you're going to get. And he goes to Egypt, same thing, second in command. And he runs the entire nation. 
But where did his training start? Potiphar's house. Potiphar's house. Now here's a, a, couple, a couple other quick lessons on this, and then I got to move on. The one thing that Eloi also brings out, I mean, which you can see this clearly from the Bible. Working for Potiphar, Potiphar comes home, he's a captain of Pharaoh's guard. So here you see that Joseph goes there, and Joseph's life is very interesting. Ah, oh, man, I wish I had time to really get into this, but I can't. So I'm just going to make the statement and ask me questions afterwards. But throughout the whole book of Genesis, God has been revealing himself to people, what we call theophany. He just appears to them. He appears to Abraham, appears to Isaac, Jacob, all these different things as the latter. So God is always speaking and appearing to people. And all of a sudden, when Joseph's life rolls around, God doesn't appear anymore. His name is mentioned. He never appears to Joseph. So theologically, what we see in the book of Genesis is a shift to the concept of providence. God uses the circumstances and the decisions of men around him to create his will. So it just so happened his brothers hated him, and they're like, you know what? They're walking around and they found a pit that was supposed to be full of water that was empty. Coincidence, right? Sell jo put Joseph in the pit. Then Joseph is in the pit. They leave for a whip. Oh, okay, let's go back. The brothers, Reuben and them, they're like, well, they're going to try to kill him. Let's try to stop it. But by the time they get back, there's some Ishmaelite travelers just happen to be looking for slaves. Right around that open water hole. <laughs> and they're going to go to Egypt. And the one person going to need a slave and buy them is... Potiphar, who happens to be the captain of the guard, coming home talking about his military excavations, right, escapades, whatever. So he's like, well, you can imagine Joseph is aware. Who does Egypt have problems with? Based upon where Potiphar is going to wage war. Then he goes to the king's prison. So this is where you have all the little royal prisoners. The butler, this guy comes down there. These are the people who know the issues in the kingdom. And he gets to rub shoulders with them. So he learns the politics of Egypt. And you thought you were just going to jail because you were unjustly accused. All along, God is creating his perfect will. Then you get up on the throne of Egypt. This guy knows how to manage the politics. He knows the nations we have issues with. And he's economical. Where did he learn economics? Potiphar's house. This speaks to us as those working in a secular environment that it may very well be that God has a specific place for you to play in salvation history through secular work. And you may not understand why you had certain jobs at certain times, but if you put your whole heart into that job, then uh, if you put your whole heart into that job, you're, you are now receiving the skills that are needed for God's future major work for your life later on. See, a lot of us, we're all concerned about what is God's will for my life? How do I choose a career? One thing that Ellen White mentions in the book, Education, a Life Work, is she talks about three basic principles for choosing a life work. And one of the principles, she says, is taking up the work nearest to you with fidelity. You see, friends, God's concern, if, his, if he has a purpose for your life, do you think it's a big purpose? Do you think it's important to him? Do you, do you think it's important to the plan of salvation? Yes? If that is the case, then notice, think here with me, with God, for a minute. If I really have such a major calling on your life, I am afraid to place you before that calling when you don't have the character that is needed to carry it out faithfully. 
So all along the way, I need you in Potiphar's house because if you can be faithful there, you'll be faithful here. Then I'm going to take you to the prison, wider sphere of influence. So for many of us, working up through the company, working from different jobs, you don't understand why you got laid off. You don't understand why God is moving you over here to this job or why this happened. All along the way, here God is creating perfect skills for you. One day when you're thrown of Egypt, because what, good, what did God always have in mind? Second in command to Pharaoh. Because all throughout Joseph's life, that is the refrain of his song. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. And for you and I, this is so key and important. We're so concerned about learning God's ultimate purpose for our lives that we forget his very general purpose, which is to reflect the image of God. And success in the eyes of God is measured by faithfulness and the spirit in which the work is done. Spirit in which the work is done. For you and I, this is huge in the professional world because we're trying to find meaning and purpose in work. And when we start integrating God into the workplace, the first place where we integrate God is realizing that we work for him, not the boss. Amen? Amen? Amen. We're going to class, not for my professor, but because of God. Jesus is my professor. Can you imagine how classrooms would be different? <laughs> if people treated the professor like he was Jesus, honored his work, his requests, this would be huge for us. This would be huge for us. Um, I guess I can read this quote really quickly, and then I'll, I'll get into a quick diagram. In the New Testament, God does not depict the Christian life as divided into sacred and secular parts. Rather, he shows it as a unified life, one of wholeness in which we may single-mindedly serve him, even in our everyday work. The glorious, liberating truth is that in Christ, God has performed the impossible. In Christ, that which was once secular has become sacred. The wall between them has been removed. Jesus became a carpenter. He wasn't just a full-time ministry person. And the majority of Jesus' life was working in a carpenter shop. We only get three years of his ministry, which we don't even have all of that. But the majority of his time on earth was in a carpenter shop. Now, this goes back to the thing that we were talking. I know this is a little hard to see. But in the Greek concept of the dualism, you have the sacred up here, you have the, sec the secular, the higher. Things pertaining to the spiritual, eternal, unchanging, upper realm of God in heaven. Then you have the second. Things pertaining to the physical, temporal, and changing lower realm of humans on earth. Versus the biblical worldview says, all these things in and of themselves right, are not innately wrong. Now, you got to be careful with the whole sports and drama and all this other stuff, but we're not going to get into that different seminar. But you have essentially that these things are balanced on the fulcrum of, is it in conflict with God's design or is it in harmony with God's design? You see, much of the world is a perversion of that which God had given to us as something that was good. Work is good. When I start working to disenfranchise my brother or sister to make a lot of money for myself, then work becomes negative. When I start figuring out how to create better casinos to trick you out of your money, work becomes not in harmony with God's design. Not in harmony with God's design. And this becomes the worldview that we must have. 
Is this part of God's design? Is this not part of God? What was God's original purpose for these things? All right, now, let's get to a couple practical things. It's 11.20, so I have until 11.45? Okay. Good. All right. So let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Get into a few more practical things. Are you there? Okay. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 10. All right, this is what the Bible says. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he what? That's pretty strong, right? You don't work, you don't eat. Sounds like my mom. You don't clean, you don't eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. You know you can be a busybody and not working. You know people like that? Busy about many things, doing absolutely nothing. It's true. And it's, it's in the Bible. I didn't make that up. <laughs> Verse 12. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice how they're commanding and exhorting. By who? By the Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Are you following this? So he's like, look, we're commanding you by the Lord Jesus Christ that you work in quietness and eat your bread. You got these people like, well, you know, the church, I'm supposed to be leaning on the church for my food and all this other stuff. No, 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 no. You need to go to work. If you don't work, Paul says, you don't eat. Now, when people have needs, Paul's all about distribution. But he said, these people are just busybodies. They want to be out doing their own thing. But then they're like, hey, the church is supposed to take care of me. Paul's like, no, you need to, in quietness, you need to work and eat your own bread. Eating up your brother's bread so you can be busy about nothing. That becomes a problem. And here in the New Testament, he's affirming this concept of work. Everyone needs to be working. Something. God has a place for you. Now, let's look at this outline really briefly. Number one, socials at your house, use of the health message. I actually like this a lot. <laughs> the title of this session is Reaching Here by Going There. If you integrate your work and your spiritual life, they're one and the same. Work is worship. What that means is, is that you're not just reaching your job by only what you do at your job. A lot of us are like, how do I actually, physically, while in the workplace, on the clock, share Jesus with people? Let me just tell you something about full-time ministry. Me being in full-time ministry, there are times in my day, for four hours, I'm not talking to anybody about Jesus. Are you following me? There's times I sit in my office, and I'm literally just responding to emails. 
Sebastian, we need to go here. Sebastian, we need to organize this. Did you call back these people? So I'm like on the phone, hey man, I got your message. Let's schedule this. Okay, I can meet with you on Thursday. So for four hours of my day sometimes, I'm not sharing with anybody about Jesus, so to speak, yes? So even in full-time ministry, it doesn't necessarily mean that every moment of my day is occupied with me literally knocking on a door, shaking a person's hand and telling them, hey, hey, this is, this is uh, you know, you need to give your life to Jesus. Are you following me? That's just not true. Anybody who told you that in full-time ministry is not telling you the truth. They have administrative responsibilities. They have practical responsibilities. Sometimes you're just sitting down looking at things like a budget. And sometimes you look at a budget for hours. And you're like, Lord, this is my life. I feel like I'm serving tables. I'm supposed to be, you know, praying the ministry of the word. But these are all necessities of doing the work of God. So it doesn't mean I'm not in full-time ministry. So in the same sense, when we come into the workplace, it doesn't necessarily mean that every moment of every day, this is what you need to be. How do I actively just constantly be sharing? Because let me ask you this question. And this would affirm whether you resonate with what I'm saying or not. If you went to work this week after GYC, and two days out of the week, you had two 10-minute conversations with two different co-workers just about God and faith, would that not highlight your week? Yes? And the people were interested. Yes? yes. You'd be like, man, this was a blessed week. You'd be at church testifying. <laughs> Went to that seminar. God bless this week. Two times I had conversations. And she's coming over on Friday. So in this sense, even you yourself do not sit down and say, I want constant opportunities because you do have to work. Yes? yes? So the whole point is, is that this is not what we're necessarily looking for. We're not looking for this continual, constant, like, I'm knocking on doors kind of experience at work. What we're looking for is, how do we lead people step by step? I'm dealing with the spiritual awakening aspect. You know, Chelsea's going to take care of all the, the hands-on. You know, she's going to give you the guys the real skills. <laughs> I'm just sharing with you, this is how you can create spiritual awakening and interest in the workplace. But it first starts with your mindset. First starts with your mindset. So going back to this this outline again. So number one, reaching here by going there. One thing that you can do practically at your job is be involved with people in your job outside of work. Be involved with people at your job outside of work. Sometimes work is not the best place to build relationships. Even in full-time ministry, I don't build the best relationship with my staff at work. It just doesn't happen sometimes. One time, you know, my, uh, my uh, assistant director, you know, she got frustrated with me one time because I was like, hey, I'm busy. I need to take care of something. And, you know, sometimes as a director, you got to pray for me. You're so one-track minded, right? You're not even being mindful how you're talking to people. So like, hey, Sebastian, I really need, not now. <laughs> Can you just give me a minute? This is how I'm addressing her. So I'm like, Lord, you know, afterwards, I was like, I need to, <laughs> I need to like repent for that. Stop what I'm doing, you know, acknowledge her, you know, explain everything, go back to my work. But in this same sense, it's not always the best place for us to build a relationship. And the same thing goes for your job. What the workplace provides is a foundation for that relationship. It gives an initial contact. Are you following me? It gives an initial contact. So what happens when you meet them outside of work, the first thing you're going to talk about the first time they come over to your house is what? You're going to talk about work. 
depending on if you like your job. I don't know <laughs> what kind of job you have. Some people may be like, please don't bring up work. But most of the time, that's where you're starting. Hey, did you see Barbara's memo? Did you see da 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 this? And we, we start going off about this stuff. But having socials and functions outside of the workplace, at your house, can be very powerful. Very powerful. What I mean is this. A lot of you young ladies, you can cook. Young men, you know somebody who can cook. <laughs> now, I believe all guys should know how to cook, but... Amen. Amen. Okay, got a lot of ladies in my seminar. <laughs> But one time, I'm just going to tell you this story um, from my own personal life, because I believe in learning how to cook. So, you know, I was, this is back when I was in college. I was trying to, like, increase my skills. And so I'm really much into the whole Iron Chef, you know. I like competitive cooking, presentation, you know, consistency, all that stuff. And so I, I invited my job. They were like, Sebastian, you know, um, you always talk about this vegan stuff. Like, what's good's vegan? I'm like, hey, why don't you guys come over? I'll cook you a vegan meal. I promise it'll be good. They're like, what? Okay, what are you going to make? I'm like, what kind of food do you guys like? They said Italian. So I made this pasta sauce from scratch, like raw tomatoes, everything. I mean, it took me like two hours to make this thing. <laughs> supposed to be doing my homework. <laughs> so I made this pasta sauce. I bought this like tofuti ice cream. You know, I had these like toppings, make it real good just in case they didn't like the ice cream flavor. And then I made like some garlic bread, some other, oh, and then I made some bruschetta. So I had all this stuff set up, right? You know, they come over, they're like, whoa. They're like, okay, okay. So they're like eating the food, and she's like, you made this pasta sauce from scratch? I'm like, yeah, from scratch. How did you do it? So I gave her the whole process. I got a recipe from uh, Pastor Conway's wife. And so I'm like, man, use this recipe, did the whole thing up. And when I went back to work, it was like, man, we have this big thing at our job on Thanksgiving. Cook a dish. You know, bring it in. We have like a Thanksgiving potluck during lunchtime. So they said, Sebastian, what are you going to bring? Because, you know, you're the cook and everything. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, oh, Lord, what did I get myself into? <laughs> so I got a recipe making some vegan cornbread. So I made some vegan cornbread, but I didn't tell them it was vegan. I just told them I was bringing the cornbread. Because people were like, yo, what's, which one is Sebastian's cornbread? Because I'm not eating any vegan cornbread. <laughs> said, I need some cream in my stuff. You know, this is how they were talking. So I brought it in, and I had to go to class. I came, when I came into work, my cornbread was gone. Gone. The other two cornbreads barely touched. <laughs> so I sit down, and they're like, Sebastian, man, nobody ate your cornbread. I'm like, no, no, this was my cornbread. <laughs> they're like, it was vegan? Yes, it was vegan. So what this began to do was that one function I had at my house, outside of work, completely changed the work environment. I got to talk with them about my life. You know, they see your pictures, you know, scriptures on the wall, whatever you got. You know, books and stuff on your desk. Oh, what's this? And all this stuff, it created an opportunity for us to have a relationship outside of work so that when we went to work, it changed exactly how we worked together. And they started asking me spiritual questions. Hey, what do you think about this terrorism thing? You think these people are going to go to hell? I'm like, what? You're sitting at your desk like, are you serious? So this thing about reaching here by going there. So you go home, right? Have this function at your house. You can start reaching your workplace without actually physically being in your workplace. Second point on this, reaching here by going there. We need to be involved in ministry outside of the workplace. Ministry must be a way of life for us. Does this make sense? If you leave your, your job 
and you start going places. Like I told you this story, right, about um, talking to my professor, and I was going to Indiana University. Well, it wasn't the only time that this happened. Another time I was going to Indiana University, um, I, had, I wore my suit, because the last time I had traveled, I think I'd recently gone to Africa or something, and they lost my luggage in Amsterdam. So I got to Africa, no nothing. Underwear, socks, absolutely nothing. Had to speak the next day. They're like, your luggage isn't coming for another 24 hours. It's in Amsterdam, you're in Johannesburg. I was like, Lord have mercy. So I, I go, and the Africans are like, hey man, we need to take you to the store. So I'm shopping from the ground up for clothes. So I was like, from now on, I travel with my suit. <laughs> so even if my luggage gets lost, I can still preach. <laughs> and not, you know, hide behind the little counter because I had bought, <laughs> I had my little like running shoes <laughs> with the suit. And I didn't want the Africans to blast me. So I went, so I went, um, I'm walking into the dean's office, dropping off some uh, paperwork, and there's the dean. He's the first African-American dean at my university. It's been around since the 1800s. Actually, Kellogg went to the school. He went to Eastern before going to University of Michigan Medical School. And the dean looks at me and says, oh, you look nice today. He's like, what's the occasion? I said, oh, I'm traveling today. He's like, where are you traveling? I'm like, going to Indiana University. He's like, oh, what are you going to do there? Speak. <laughs> what are you going to speak about? Here we go again. <laughs> I was like, okay, I get the point, Lord. I'm like, I'm going to preach, you know, for campus ministries. He said, really? So you speak? I said, yeah, every now and again. <laughs> he said, all right, can you save this date for me? I'm like, uh, sure. He said, I'll let you know more details. So that, that summer, I was leading a canvassing program. And right before we started, I got a message from my, from my job. And they're saying, hey, the dean's been trying to reach you. I'm like, for what? They're like, he wants you to come speak at this State of the African American Male Conference, sponsored by the Kellogg Foundation. The mayor of Detroit's gonna be there. The you know, state legislature's gonna be there. You know, professors, deans, da 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 da. I was like, oh, okay, interesting. <laughs> so I called up the dean, and this is how it went. Okay, you have three minutes. I'm like, Lord, what am I gonna say in three minutes? So then they got me, they called me a week before it was starting. I said, okay, you have five minutes. The day before, I found I had 10 minutes. <laughs> and so the uh, title was A Courageous Conversation, right? They're talking about the state African-American male. They said, we want to get an actual African-American male who's doing something positive with his life. So I said, okay, sure. <laughs> so I got up, I got up and um, I wish I could, actually I could probably bring up the speech, but for sake of time, I won't bring it up. But I ended up getting up there and I was actually sick, deathly sick, like the morning of. I drove all the way from like Saginaw, Michigan, down there. And I was like, Lord, you know, just gotta save my voice just for 10 minutes. So I get up, give my speech. And it might, I mean, it's just like completely different impact after the speech. So like all of a sudden these professors, University of Michigan are like, hey, we wanna use you for this project. We want you to speak at these youth functions. The professors like, we wanna do these projects with you. Da, 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 da. A year later, I ended up getting the MLK Award um, for the community, all this other stuff. And I'm like, from this one situation, if I was not actively involved in ministry outside of my job, that instance would have never happened. And what ended up happening was the combination of, number one, by God's grace, learning to be a faithful worker at my job. Number two, being involved in ministry outside my job combined to create a opportunity to minister. And in that speech, 
they said, oh yeah, a courageous conversation, the state of the African American male. And I started off with the speech about, about um, Webster's Dictionary. And in Webster's Dictionary in 2006, which I was giving the speech right um, somewhere in that year, and I said, uh, they said the most frequently defined word on the website was integrity. So I said, here we're talking about the state of African-American men, and we want to get them among thought leaders and congressmen and lawmakers and all this other stuff. And I said, you know, as an African-American male, I do not support putting African-American men in these positions because they're African-American, but because they're good men. Amen. And then I read a quote that says, the greatest one of the world is the one of men. Men who will not be bought or sold. After I finished quoting that statement, I went into the rest of my speech, standing ovation, right? They come down, I already told you, they start inviting me to do all these different things. Guy comes up to me and says, are you Seventh-day Adventist? <laughs> I've been found out! <laughs> but I end up leaving that situation. You know, went back to Canvas and then the Lord has to humble you, you know, put you on the streets canvassing. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, Lord, where's the love? <laughs> but what ended up happening was, was that that created just an immense amount of opportunities. Then I started a nonprofit on campus. This leads me into the second aspect of this. So it's like being involved in ministry outside of campus, outside of your university, outside of your job, creates these opportunities. But then on top of this, getting more involved in the use of your job. This is what I mean. A lot of us have skills that we can actually proffer off pro bono wise. We can use these skills just as a humanitarian need. And this is what I mean. Studying business and finance, I actually started a nonprofit at my university. They said, okay, we'll make this your work study, and the university paid me to run my own nonprofit. It was called Unbound. And what we did is we take resources from the turnover of wealthy schools, and we would donate it to poorer schools in inner city Detroit. So as I was doing this work, they said, I said, hey, we should have a benefit concert. They're like, yeah, let's do it, Sebastian. So I go up, schedule this benefit concert, and I invite the Cadet sisters to do our benefit concert. They came twice. So here are professors, classmates, listening to the Cadet sisters, right? at my university for a benefit concert, donating money. The second time they came, we had some money, we had some issues with the finances. The dean and uh, my boss, um, I went to her and I said, hey, I don't know if I have the money, do you know any way that I can get money? She said, have you asked the dean? You know he adores you, whatever. <laughs> I was like, um, I'm like, sure, you know, I'll ask him. And she said, whatever the dean gives you, I'll match it. Okay, so I go to the dean, I say, this is the situation. He said, how much do you need? I'm like, uh, to fly all of them out here? It's going to be like, you know, $2,000. He said, okay, I'll give you $1,500. And I told him, Dr. Tracy said she'll match whatever you pay. He said, okay, I'll give you $2,000. <laughs> I go back, Dr. Tracy, right? I'm kind of like meek and <laughs> mild. Hey, uh, the dean... <laughs> He donated $2,000. Are you serious? I said, yeah. Oh, great. She writes the check. So I end up having enough money for posters, all this other stuff, for this benefit concert. Now, what ends up happening is one of the professors there 
was at this benefit concert. Extremely blessed, she loved it. She's the director of diversity on the campus. We end up building a close relationship and she says, Sebastian, you know, before you graduate, I was going off to Boston, start this stride thing. And she said, you know, I want to meet with you for lunch. I said, okay, great. So we go out to lunch at IHOP. Not much vegan options, but you know, it works. <laughs> we get there and I say, hey, I, I like to pray before we start the meal. She says, that'd be great. So I pray, I had a Christ object lesson with me. I wanted to give to her. As we're sitting there dialoguing, you know, she starts talking about, she says, Sebastian, you know, I want you to pray for me. This is the professor. I want you to pray for me. She says, I'm still trying to find God's will for my life. And I say, hey, I want to give you this book. I think it'll be a tremendous help to you. Practical lessons in life, et cetera, et cetera. She says, sure, that would be great. That would be great. She takes the book. I sign it. We have a prayer session together. Before we leave, go back to the university, back to work. And now to this day, I still have relationships with these people. Step by step. Now those stories for me are enough for me to believe that God can still work in the workplace. And granted, they may not have necessarily gotten baptized yet. And notice I say yet. Because it's coming. It's coming. But I'm simply talking about this reaching here by going there. You may think going to the Philippines, going on a mission trip for GYC, going on some outreach with your church, traveling over during your spring break time or your week off from Christmas and saying, you know what, I'm not just going to waste this, I'm actually going to do some ministry. And this is your mindset. I'm saying that so that when I come back to work, people are going to say, what did you do for Christmas? Uh, I went to a youth conference. Really? What kind of youth? Oh, it's a Christian youth conference, Generation of Youth for Christ, powerful stuff. Go on and on, you know. I got my pin from the stride booth, you know, may I pray for you? <laughs> They're like, oh, wow. They're like, that sounds interesting. How long have you been involved with that? And this creates automatic opportunities at your job. Is this sinking in? Yeah. Yes. So this whole phrase, think in your mind, reaching here by going there. Inviting people back to your home, traveling out yourself to do ministry and coming back with stories and powerful experiences. And then thirdly, dealing with the fact, like I said, being involved in your job. You're a graphic designer. Take your work. Take all these things and say, you know what? I'm going to offer free services. I got this idea from when I was flying somewhere. And I was sitting next to this gentleman. He, was a he owns a construction business. And we were both Christians. So he was like, oh, man, you seem like a Christian. He saw me break out my Bible. After that, it was over. We start talking and eventually he said, you know, um, I really love what I do. You know, I love the fact that you do what you do. We need young people out there doing this stuff. He says, I'm excited to hear that, you know, and encourages my heart. But he says, I know I'm called into the construction business. And he started telling me how, I mean, his company, I mean, they do stuff for like Home Depot and all this kind of stuff. I mean, they're big time. And he said, but 20% of my clients are people we do who can never afford our services. And they donate the money, the staff, the hours, and the materials. And they'll say, ma'am, you need your house remodeled? We know you can never afford it. We're going to come do it for you for free. For free. And he says, you know what that creates in my workplace? Completely different mindset for the workers. If you begin to be the catalyst to create that kind of spirit within your own job, guys, hey, 
Let's all get together. We're all nurses. Let's just offer free services. We know how to do health expos. So you say, hey, look, let's just get together. You may not necessarily have to have a spiritual twist to it, but you can present the concept to your hospital. Why don't we go out and do this in the community? It'll bring great publicity. This is how everything works together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you'll be amazed how your bosses would respond. And this is something that, as you take this mindset into consideration, you will find opportunities on the right hand and on the left. Sebastian, whatever your name is, I'm interested in your kind of faith. I'm interested in the faith that leads you and gives you purpose and meaning to push through these things. Not personality-driven, not personality driven, driven by principles, desire for excellence, to benefit humanity, and obviously to live for the glory of God. I don't know where I am in terms of time. Zero. Okay. So... Uh, I have to stop here. Um, are we going to do any questions or we're done? Maybe we can for five minutes or so. Okay. Okay. Um, I, yeah, she said, if people want to stay, I can do a quick question and answer. That's helpful for people. Yes? No? All right, well, I'll pray. So those of you who need to go can go. And then if people want to stay, if you guys can exit quietly, I can just do a quick Q&A session. All right, let's stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, we'd like to thank you for the opportunity to study these things. Uh, Lord, we recognize that there's so much to be done in terms of creating powerful resources and us really being mobilized as young professionals in the work world. Father, we're thankful that God is still moving in our workplaces, that there are still opportunities out there for us. We pray that you'll teach us how to improve upon each one of them, that we may always remember that our success is not in our results, but it is in our faithfulness and the spirit in which the work is done. Use us, Lord, as we go about doing your will and guide us safely is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, you had some basic questions. Uh, yeah. I'll be back here at 2.30 for one last session. It'll be a lot more interactive, but I just wanted to lay the groundwork. Um, there are some questions that Katie had taken before we started. I just want to kind of speak to those briefly and then open it up. Um, one of the questions that came up was how to work in Babylon how to work in Babylon. Um, obviously, this is an allusion to Daniel. He's in Babylon. You know, he's working. Um, I didn't really address this aspect in the first two sessions in terms of character. Um, but essentially, there's two things that obviously you have, to, you, have to, um, you have to first make up in your mind before you work. The first thing you have to make up in your mind is you will not compromise. Yes? So you have to make up in your mind. There's just certain things you will not do. Don't say, I'm going to wait to the situation. Decide ahead of time. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is recognize, like I mentioned in the first session, is that me being pure ethically is not just me being without sin. I didn't, you know, work on the Sabbath or something like that. 
but it's also about you being actively engaged in your job in such a way that reflects that you view your work as worship. So Daniel, we know in Daniel chapter 6, right, they tried to investigate and they said they could find no fault with him. That is the aspiration of the worker of God. They should look at your work and find no fault with your work. They're like, we're looking for him. Is he cheating off the top? Is he slimming something? Is he cutting down on his meetings and going off to this? No. Daniel was not doing it. 120 men were studying, looking for a mistake. They couldn't find one. So working in Babylon, it's not just, hey, you know, I want to just be faithful to God, but we also want to be faithful in our work. So working in Babylon comprises that balance. Don't do anything that's compromising, but also don't compromise the very foundation of your power, your power as a witness, which is your excellence in your work. Um, how to share your faith when working at another faith institution. Um, I briefly talked about this with the whole reaching here by going there. A lot of times, as I said, you don't have to necessarily reach them at the physical location, but building relationships with them, because what we're trying to reach is people, not institutions. So because of that, people don't only come to work. They don't only come to work. So in the third session, I'll deal with this a little more, 1 Corinthians 9, different approaches to ministry and how to really connect with people. But number one, it doesn't have to always be on the clock. That's the first thing. Using socials, a lot of people are dealing with health problems in their own life or in their families. Those become opportunities. And we know that the health message is the right arm of the gospel. Um, how to witness winsomely, that's Chelsea's specialty. Um, so I'll kind of leave that for her. What to do if it's illegal? Um, at Harvard University, it's illegal to proselytize. Um, at Wellesley College, we've had some issues there working with the ministry. I sat down with the religious vice president um, there at Wellesley. We kind of ironed out some issues in terms of evangelism. Their biggest thing is you need to figure out what are the policies in your institution about those particular things. Educating ourselves about the policies of the institution tremendously creates a wealth of opportunities in your mind. When you understand what are the boundaries, you understand how to work within the boundaries, yes? But if you don't know how much space you have and you find out after you've already transgressed, you've already shot yourself in the foot. So when they have to kind of put the fence down for you, because you didn't read the policy, you didn't know, you didn't know, but you should have known. In those senses, it actually creates more problems in the future for your ministry. So the biggest thing is acquaint yourself with the policy and with the policy makers. Find out what is it that they're looking for in that particular area of spirituality at your job or you know, at your school, whatever the case may be. So in terms of it being illegal or against the policies or rules, find out what the policies are and find out what space is created for that kind of thing. Um, does your witness depend on your personality? Uh, the answer to that is no. Uh, the Bible says that, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me. The key to your witness is do you have the Holy Spirit? That's fundamentally what it comes down to. So personality, God needs, because there's people like you that you can connect with. So the Holy Spirit working through your personality will draw people of a similar personality. Detail-oriented people tend to draw detail-oriented people. People who like to get excited and run around draw people who like to get excited and run around. <laughs> so in that sense, uh, your personality is actually an advantage to you and it actually helps focus your ministry. 
you do not have to minister and reach every single person. And in that line, we need to become a little more resourceful. So it's like, man, you know, who do I know can really connect with this person? And kind of connect them to that person who they can really connect with. But focus on those whom you know you can really connect with. And that's because Jesus doesn't just call us to share information. He calls us into discipleship. So that means there must be a relationship between you and this individual. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. When you see people together, sometimes you might feel as though it's a closed circle and it kind of pushes you away from that. Yes. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Um, Number one, this is one of the first principles of innovation. When you want to be innovative in a situation, especially ministry, you you need to seek things you wouldn't normally seek. So the whole thing, what I'm saying is that with this person that you're trying to minister to, sometimes you need to break away from your group and do something that's unorthodox. And you say, hey guys, all your friends are like, hey, hey, come on girl, we're gonna go to lunch right now. And you see this other person, they're like, hey, I'm not gonna go to lunch till two o'clock. You say, you know what, I'm gonna wait till two o'clock and I'm gonna go to lunch with them. Now they don't have to know that, it just worked out, worked out. (laughs) So number one, in breaking a click mentality in terms of a perspective that people have, that's the first thing. Number two, you have to be an agent of change within your own clique. And you have to challenge them to do the same. So you say, you guys, you know what? We're not trying to be elitist here. We're not saying we're the only ones. But by us trying to look for solidarity, we have to balance. Part of the the principles we teach in terms of stride and discipleship is community. But community must have a purpose. We don't come together just to come together, sing songs, and enjoy each other's company. That's for heaven. On earth, the community of Christ has a purpose because it has a work to be done. So Jesus says, I will build my church on this rock. So his church is to be built on the fact that he's the son of God, and therefore we are to carry that message and bring him to all those who are in the world. So making sure that your group um, is a group that has a definite aim, you identify the strengths, the weaknesses in your group, and use every individual person according to their strengths to impact your workplace. So the fact that you have a group is powerful if you use it rightly. Because a lot of us would love to have that. I'd love to have two, three Adventists at my job. But the key is, are we of the same mentality? And if we have the same mentality and interest and goals, then we can impact that workplace. Because we come in and you come down and you say, when we come to work, we're coming with the desire to impact this place. We're changing the atmosphere of every meeting. Cheap conversations, we're steering away from that. So if you don't do it, she's going to do it. And if she can't do it, there's another one that can do it. And by you guys doing that, convening, setting plans, working through the contacts who you're working with, hey, pray for this person. I was talking to them. She became, she kind of opened up about some problems in her life. We need to pray for her. We'll get her a gift. We'll all put our money together. Our time, we'll go visit her outside of work, take her out to eat. So by having a group, there's so much you can do with that if the community has a definite aim. 
this is what we're trying to do. But when the community has no purpose, no cause, but itself, you know, it's, it's just going to cave in. It'll self-destruct. Because people are sinful. <laughs> mm -hmm. Which one? Yes. Um, I can get it for you in the next session. I'm not sure if I have it in my notes right here. Uh, yeah, just remind me. I'll bring, it, I'll bring it in the third session. I'll make sure I get you the reference. Yes. What if uh, someone's like, mocking you in the workplace? Uh-huh. Well, number one, um, one of the most powerful principles to help us to get along with humanity when we have problems is Ephesians 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. The person is not my problem. It's the fact that the person is not surrendered to Jesus that permits them to be led captive by the devil at his will to do his bidding. So because they have no power to resist the devil, the devil can use them to create problems in my life. But remember, we go back to the fact that oftentimes people who are hurting say hurtful things. So a lot of times they may have had a bad experience with the seven-day Adventist. You know, maybe he had a seven-day Adventist girlfriend. She dumped him. You know, now he hates all seven. It happens. You know, it's true. It's just like people get mad and like forget seven-day Adventist. Da 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 da. Um, so the mockery and all that other stuff. You have to think past yourself and upon the individual's need for salvation. And by you showing love to them, it becomes powerful. It becomes powerful. So in that sense, just remember what you don't wrestle with. That you're not my problem. And that's what the whole book of Ephesians is about, is unity. And that's his most powerful argument for unity. People are not your problem. It's spiritual wickedness. That's why the armor of God is not emotional, it's not physical, it's not intellectual, it's spiritual. That is your protection. You can lock up your door, you can ADT your house, you can get the club on your steering wheel, but how do you lock up your soul? That's the armor of God. That's how that works. Any other questions? All right. God bless you. I'll see whoever has the courage to come back a third session. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.